Welcome to the MWC Church Podcast. This is Stephen Luna, the lead pastor. I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening, and I hope you find that this inspires you in your relationship with Christ. Now here's this week's sermon. Oh my gosh. That teaser, it gets me every week. I'm so excited. So we're in this series, we're branded, obviously. We're going through a rebrand, and we've been talking about the why. Simon Sinek, a great leadership uh, author, you may, you may have heard him. He, he has a, a book uh, called Start With Why, and uh, we, we understand that it's not so much talking about what the name is going to be, it's, it's really starting with, with why we're doing this and, and why our church exists. And, and we've been talking about a couple of weeks of, of the people in the Bible who, who the Lord has rebranded and, and why that reason is. And every single week, we've been saying, man, our church is going to exist for that purpose. In the same way that Simon became Peter by the confession of, of who Jesus was, he essentially said, Jesus, you're everything. When Jesus asked him that question, Jesus by that right confession, change his name from Simon to Peter. And we have said our church, man, we exist for Jesus. He's why we wake up in the morning. He's, he's why we go to bed. Like Jesus is everything to this church and he will continue and forever be that. We've also said that, that our church exists to reach all nations. We see that, that the Lord's heart from Genesis all the way to Revelation has been to, to gather up every single person under the face of the earth. Our God is not a God who shows favoritism. He desires all of his people. And when I look around our church, when I look around our city, yes, I see a picture of heaven, but I believe God is calling us to be a church that reaches the multitudes, that we will reach the nations at, at whatever the name of our church is going to be. I can't wait to just give it to you so I can start saying it. So, uh, man, I, I'm so excited for this, this rebrand. We've been talking about this, and today I'm excited to talk about a man by the name of Abram. But let me start with this story. Have you ever, or when I was in college, we had a comedian, and I went to a Bible college. We had chapel five times a week. We would, we would sit in service, and they're like, hey, you're going to be preaching a lot. You might as well get a lot of preaching in. So, so we, we would sit in service five days a week. Chapel was awesome. There was one time uh, they had a comedian come, and the comedian was once a pastor, and uh, he said this, I, I kind of quit ministry because uh, you know it was, it was a really hard job. And he was joking, but he was also serious. He's like, you tell me what other job do you have to preach from a an ancient text every single week, and not only do you have to be a preacher, teacher, a public speaker, which by the way, public speaking is the, the, the number two most feared fear in all the world. Number one is dying. So right behind dying is public speaking. Then he says this, not only do you have to be a public speaker and a teacher and teach from an ancient text, but, but then you also have to be a CEO. You have to hire and lead a staff and manage a church. And then, and then you also have to recruit volunteers. So you're a nonprofit manager and you have to create teams. And then you also have to build and manage budgets and you have to be a financial CFO. And he's bringing up all these different things, and like he says, your church will probably have a building campaign, so you're gonna have to learn about architecture and, and, and design and things like that. He's like, and, and by the way, um, people are gonna get married, and they're gonna have weddings, and there's gonna be death, and you're gonna have funerals, so you're gonna also have to be a counselor. And then, and then, and then, if that's not worse, uh, there is gonna be someone who plunges the toilet every Sunday, and guess who's gonna have to go in there and unplug it? You, you're the janitor. CEO, CFO, like, and he's listed all this stuff, and I think by the end of that service, like, half of us are like, yeah, I'm done, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. I used to think that that ministry was hard, you know, and it's, it's awesome, and I would never want to do anything. I, I love this, I'm called to this, uh, but I, I, love, I love serving this church, but I found something that is way more tedious, and I would dare say difficult than being a pastor. Man, being a stay-at-home mom is tough. Can I just be honest? 
Like my wife, uh, sometimes we'll, we'll, because we we pastor and we do things together, but it's hard with three kids, three toddlers. So what we do is sometimes uh, we'll tag team things and then she comes into the church and she'll get things ready for for sisterhood events and get things ready for church. And she's more of the the, the behind the scenes kind of leader. So she she does a lot of that stuff and we'll, we'll slap hands and I'll go in and I'll take care of the kids. Not even 10 minutes in, I'm calling my wife, Katie, I don't know what to do. Like, 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 I remember when they, when they were first born, I'm like, hey, what, what does this cry mean? And I'm just like, hold it. He's like, oh, Desi's hungry. I'm like, okay, got it. I, don't worry about it. We're good. We're good. But 10 minutes in, I'm already like ready to tap out. Okay, let's switch. I'll go plunge toilets. Like, please, let's, let's switch. I, I'd rather preach and do this. But so, so, so I learned something. Man, that job is tough. That's a tough job. So we obviously loving each other. I'm like, hey, what can I do to kind of make your job easier? And she's like, you know what? Uh, when, we were, when we were young and we didn't have kids, it was easy for me to, to be the financial person in the house. My wife is gifted with administrative and numbers and finances. And uh, she's like, it was easy for me to do that. But now that we've got three kids, it's hard for me to, to balance a budget and to also wipe a nose. Like, it's just really difficult to do that. So I'm like, hey, I'll, I'll take over some of the things. So I, I started taking over some of the finances and then... And then um, because we'd always get together and balance the budget together, but she would kind of set the agenda, and I'd be like, yes, ma'am, looks great. Let's do this, right? Uh, but now it's kind of like switched roles. And then she said, you can also take over some of the grocery shopping. My first week I did it, I was like $200 over budget. I had no idea what I was doing. She's like, you only need one bottle of ketchup. Why do you have 16, right? Like, it's like, I don't know what I was doing. So, so I started like getting better, and I'm very competitive, and I'm super competitive with myself. So I'm like, I'm gonna make sure we spend like zero, like I'm gonna get a lot. If I have to rob someone's house, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. If I got to steal someone's groceries, no, I won't do that. Uh, but I was like, I'm, I'm going to get this really good. So I started bargain shopping. Like, I'm not clipping coupons. That's a whole other level of crazy. But, but I, I'm going to start bargain shopping. And, and, and I learned something. I learned how much I love a good deal. You like a good deal? Everybody loves a good deal. I've learned the formula for a good deal. The formula for a good deal is this. It's based on two factors. I'm going to give you a formulaic expression of how to find a good deal. It's this. The formula to decide whether something is a good deal or not is this. How much we give versus how much we receive in return. All right? Super easy. You kind of get it. How much we give versus how much we receive in return. You get kind of, kind of easy, kind of, kind of understandable there. I'm going to say this. A good deal is when you give very little and receive a lot. A fair or average deal is when what you give is kind of reciprocated by, by what you receive. You, you, you broke even. You didn't get a lot or you didn't lose a lot. But a bad deal is when you give a lot and receive a little. Dylan's. Man, I go, listen, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be preaching against Dylan's, but I go to Dylan's and I always spend more than $25, even if I walk out with one thing. So I learned something. I can't, I, I love Dylan's. I like their woohoo deals. Like I love at after eight o'clock, they mark down their chicken. Like that's great. You know, late night at the office, I'll go get some chicken at Dylan's. But by and large, I'm not going to get my groceries there. Maybe if, if someone's a Dylan's person, they're offended, but that's, I love you. Uh, the next thing, uh, Walmart is pretty fair. You know, you get what you pay for. Uh, but my favorite place, my place where I go for a good deal, Aldi's. 
Oh, man, whoever said it, I love you. Man, I can't believe the church is clapping for all these. I love, I love all these. Man, I, I go there, I bring my quarter, I put it in this, I get my cart, and I go around, I'm shopping. All these, I can put whatever I want, and I learned this. I can put whatever I want in my cart, and I'm not going to spend more than 150 bucks. Like, it, it's great. Like, my family of, of five is going to do fine. Like, we can live here, right? Like, like all these, we go there, and I, 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 there's sometimes where my cart is full, and I'm just, like, praying in tongues. Like, I'm just like, oh, dear Jesus, please, no, don't, I, I haven't even, I should have been marked and is figuring out how much it's going to cost. We get there, 150 bucks. I'm like, thank you, Jesus, right? You got to bag your own stuff, but that's worth it for the price, right? And if you know me, if you know me personally, you know that one of my largest pet peeves, my biggest pet peeve is when people don't put the carts back. At Dylan's, if you want that quarterback, you're going to put the cart back. So I love, like, I'm sorry, at Aldi's, if you want that quarterback, at Dylan's, they don't ever put the carts back. I, I like, got a part-time job there putting carts back for everybody. But at Aldi's, if you want that quarterback, you're going you're gonna to you know, put the cart back. So I love that place. I love Aldi's. Can, can I just submit to you this fact? I think sometimes when it comes to a relationship with God, I think some individuals, especially I was one of them, but I used to think that a relationship with God or religion is a bad deal. You have to give a lot and you receive very little. You gotta go to church on Sunday and you gotta go to church on Wednesday and you gotta be good and you gotta lead a moral life and you can't do this and you can't do that and you give this up and you give that up and a long list and, and you get hardly anything. That was what I thought about God. I, I thought it was a bad deal. And I became a Christian, and then I, I was like, oh, m- maybe it's a fair deal. Maybe I, I get what I give. Maybe it's a reciprocal thing. Like, and then I started saying, God, if you would just give me this, I promise I'll, I'll go to church. And, and, and I thought it was a balanced deal. But then the more and more I got closer to the Lord, I began to realize something. Following after God is not a bad deal. It's not even a fair deal. It is a good deal. The Lord tips the scales of favor entirely into the direction of us. Like, like God gives us everything and hardly asks for anything. In comparison, asks for hardly anything in return. In fact, we see in the book of Exodus, we see how the Lord describes himself. This isn't a descriptor someone gave to the Lord. This is one that he brings up of himself. In Exodus chapter 34, it says this. I want to read it to you really quick. It says this. And he, being the Lord, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. I mean, literally a long, long fuse. He's so slow to anger, abounding in love, meaning overflowing in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. Everybody say thousands. This is a numerical figure that we see in the text, uh, expressing and maintaining love to thousands. The implication there in the text, and you'll see it in a second, is thousands of generations. Not just thousands of people, but thousands of generations. That means you, your kids, your grandkids, your kids, 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 like, and so on times a thousand. Like God is one who maintains love for thousands of generations. What you have done will, because of the faithfulness, because of the character of God, it will continue to unfold for thousands of generations. That is God. That may seem ridiculous to us because we are people that understand fairness and we say what you do, you deserve, but what your kids do, they deserve. But God is different. He says, I I will love because of your love for me and my love for you. I will love for thousands of generations. But look what it says here. It says, 
love for thousands of generations, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He's still faithful. He's still just. He's still a holy and righteous God. It says here, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now that sounds like, I remember before I was a Christian, I would only hang out on that passage and say, see, he's a bad God and completely forget about the thousands of generations that I just read about. But even that text needs to be clarified. That's not saying God is going to punish your children for the sins that you've committed. That means sin has a way of having a residual effect. If you choose to live a life that is addicted to bondage and sin and destruction, that will have ramifications on the next generation. He's not saying because, of, he's not saying because the Lord uh, hates you or he hates this individual, he's going to hate the kids. And he's, no, he's saying this. Because of sin, it has a way of messing things up. Your sin can, in fact, have a reciprocal effect on the following generation. But he's gonna maintain love for thousands of generations. Literally, if we were to put a numerical figure to this, we would say the Lord has, has tipped the balances a thousand to three, a thousand to four even. God is a good God. He's a God of good deals. I mean, God is so good that he's even willing to take a bad deal just to give us a good deal. In Romans chapter eight, we see this. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came. The idea of being utterly helpless is uh, a good illustration for that would be someone who is literally living on nothing, someone who is living in complete uh, bondage, someone who's living in complete depravity, someone who has absolutely nothing, no, no amount of material gain in, in their name. It says here, when, the Lord, or when we were utterly helpless or hopeless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God, but God showed his love for us by this, sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. The Lord didn't wait for us to somehow bring something good to the table and say, okay, let's strike a deal. The Lord said, hey, you got nothing to offer. You got nothing in your hands, nothing in your pockets. In fact, you ain't even wearing clothes. You have nothing. But I'm so good that I will tip the scales of goodness in your favor. Amen. Anybody in this place that feels that it's God, God gives us what we deserve or no, he, he's a gracious God. He gives you what you don't deserve. That's grace. We serve a God who is good. And my point is not to talk about deals. My uh, my point is to, to bring us to this man by the name of Abram, whom the Lord had to walk with to show time and time again how good he was. I want to read Genesis 17. Now, if you were to do a, a, a case study or a book study on the character of Abram, the person of Abram, you would see that his story actually starts off in Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to talk a little bit about that story today. But our main text is in Genesis 17. He truly is, Abram is like the, the, the guy of, of uh, the Old Testament. He is the one that becomes the foundation for the nation of Israel. I mean, Abram is, is what they call the, the father, the patriarch. I mean, literally, Abram has a, a song named after him that we'll sing later, but, but Abram is the central, one of the most central figures in the Old Testament. And here's what we read about him in Genesis chapter 17. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, and I think my translation says, holy moly, and then it continues on, years old, 
the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your number. So we're starting to see a little, a little give and take there. He's like, hey, walk faithfully, walk blamelessly, but I will increase. Incre- Everybody say increase. I will greatly increase your number. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, as for me, this is my, what's that word? Covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be rebranded, and you will be Abraham. The Lord is bringing a a covenant. He's bringing a shift of focus, and with that shift of focus comes a new identity. He's saying, you are Abraham. Abram means exalted father. Uh, one whom in society people look up to and adore. But I am calling you now father of multitudes. You may not have multitudes yet, but you better believe your name will fulfill the promises I'm speaking over you. The Lord is saying you will be a father of multitudes, for I have made you a father of many nations. Was he a father of many nations at this point? No, but the Lord is already speaking that over him. He says this, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you. And by the way, the Lord is trying to teach him the word covenant. He says it over four times in this section alone. He's trying to get him to understand what a covenant is. He says, an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. My title of the message today is this, Deal or No Deal. Deal or no deal, we see God's deal to Abraham. And I believe that from this text, we see just the significance and the beauty of of what unfolds when God strikes a deal with his people. Deal or no deal. My first point that I want us to see here is is that God always initiates the deal. Look, Look in this verse. It says here, the Lord appeared to him. Who was the one that that rang the doorbell? Was Abram like, man, I kind of miss God. I'm going to go see what he's doing. I'm going to go to God's house and see what he's doing. No, no, what, what happened? The Lord appeared to Abram. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Can, can we start with the premise of this, that every single relationship that anyone has with God has always been initiated by God that none of us in this place, our combined efforts of goodness and strength combined, none of our efforts combined ever said, hey, maybe we should seek after God. No, God has been the one who's been doing the seeking. Now, I'm not saying that this is Calvinism and he has therefore determined everyone's salvation, but I am saying this, he has knocked on the door of every single person who's opened it. The Lord is the one who initiates the friendship. The Lord is the one who initiates the relationship. The moment you start getting prideful about your situation with God, you need to remind yourself that he is the one who came to me. I was dead in my sin and he came to me. If I have a relationship with him, it's not because I'm good and because I'm wise and I thought, hey, maybe I should go to church someday and be a good dad. No, it's because the Lord was already convicting me saying, hey, you may want to be a good dad or a good mom and start going to church. He is the one who, by his Holy Spirit, initiates the relationships. And and if that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what's wrong. Like, God is the one who's initiated every relationship, including the relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus. 
He's initiated every relationship. We see this in Romans chapter three, verse 10. Paul's writing, he says this, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. The, 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 the psalm that he's quoting would say, there is no one who seeks understanding and no one who seeks God. God is the one who seeks after us. You don't believe me? Let me just walk you through the Bible really quick. Who was it that sought after Adam? Remember Adam sinned? It was the Lord who then came into the garden and said, hey, Adam, where are you? The Lord sought after Adam. The Lord appeared to Adam. You continue going, Noah at the flood. Did Noah think to himself, hey, I think it's gonna rain. I might as well build a boat. No, the Lord showed up to Noah and said, hey, Noah, this is about to unfold. Here's a plan of salvation in this situation. The Lord went to Abraham and said, hey, Abraham, you're living in your dad's house. You've got nothing going for you. Let me take you from here at the ripe old age of 75. You've got no kids. You and Sarai have nothing going on. Let me bless you and turn you into a nation. We see that the Lord appeared to Jacob at the riverbank. And Jacob was, was a guy who was struggling with insecurity, fear, doubt, anxiety, all of the above. The Lord shows up to Jacob and says, hey, bro, let's wrestle. We see the Lord is the one that shows up to Moses in the desert. Moses just killed a man, struck him down, was running from his life. The Lord appears in the form of a burning bush and says, Moses, Moses, he's the one who's calling out. You see Joshua. Joshua was just hanging out in the tent of, of Moses. Like, he's just a little guy. He's a lackey. He's, a, he's the personal assistant carrying everything for, for Moses. And the Lord goes to Joshua and says, Joshua, follow after me. Moses is about to pass. I'm calling you to be the leader. We see again Samuel. Israel is living in sin. The priest Eli is living in sin. The temple is in shambles. The Lord goes to Samuel and says, Samuel, Samuel, wake up. We see time and time again, the Lord is the one who initiates the relationship. You jump just a few hundred years to the New Testament, and the Bible starts in John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came to us. We see that Jesus is the one that went to Simon and said, hey, Simon, you're fishing. Let me call you to be a fisher of men. He's the one that went to Matthew at the tax collector's booth and said, hey, Matthew, you're literally stealing money from people. Let me use you. I mean, I hope by now you understand that you didn't initiate anything, that if you're sitting today saying, I better get my life right before I come to Jesus, can I just submit to you that he's the one who's coming to you? We see time and time again, Zacchaeus was in the tree. He was kind of peeking at God saying, I wonder who this, who this Jesus is. And Jesus comes to him and says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house for dinner. I can go anywhere I want, but, but I'm, I'm coming to your house. We see Lazarus in the tomb. Jesus shows up outside the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. We see time and time again, Peter, after he sinned, he gave up on Jesus. He went back to fishing. Jesus had died already. And he's like, I guess this is end for me. I'm going to go back to the old trade. And Jesus shows up to Peter and says, Peter, let's go. You're forgiven. Feed my sheep. Be the leader I've called you to be. Then we see Paul on his way to kill Christians. And Jesus appears to him. What I'm trying to convey this morning is this. God is a good God. He gives good deals. He's the one who initiates the conversation. We don't. When God strikes a deal or a covenant, we, we don't show up at the table wearing a suit and tie and come with lawyers in hand and say, the Lord, Lord, I'll, I'll give you 50 of these for 50 of those. Like, like, like th there is no equality when it comes with uh, making or striking a deal with God. In fact, it's the very opposite. We go to him as paupers in the presence of a king. 
And he's not the kind of king that is looking to gouge his, his citizens, thinking to himself, how can I amass more for myself? Right? He's not like, like Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. Like, like, like literally, God is a good king, and he's like, how can I not get more from them, but how can I give more to them? How can I give more of my Holy Spirit to them? How can I give more of my presence, and, and how can I display more of my character? How can I make them who they were created to be with me in the beginning? God is a good God. But God's deals, my second point is this, God's deals only come as covenants. Everybody say covenant. God's deals come as covenants. When we understand deals, especially business deals, we think of the term contract, right? We are born with the understanding of what a contract is. Don't believe me? My four-year-olds already understand this. Like they, I, I say, hey, when I get home from church, when I get home from work, um, we're going to go to the park today. And the first thing that August and Aubrey say, are you promised? <laughs> like, it's like, dude, wouldn't I have ever broken my word to you, you little shysters? Like, come on, get out of here. Like, and they're like, you promised, Dad? And that, why? Because they understand that if I give a word, I'm giving a contract, right? Uh, There's conditions to that, that that if I break this contract, they're gonna be upset and I I can't be upset that they're upset because I gave a word, I gave a contract. We understand contracts. You remember when you were a kid, someone said, hey, uh, can, can you go to the park after school? And you're like, yeah, I'll be there. And they did this. What is this? Pinky promise, right? You, you pinky promise, like you're going, you're going to be there. Like, like we understand contracts. A contractual relationship is this. Two equals coming together saying, I will give you X if you give me Y in return. There is an exit clause. If you fail to uphold X, then I will rescind my offer of Y. But God doesn't strike those kind of deals. Some of you think that way about God. Some of you think that way about God where where God says, hey, I will save you if you promise to be a good boy or girl. But the moment you don't uphold your end of the deal, I'm leaving. Listen, you didn't save yourself. Why do you now think that your salvation is completely dependent on your ability to perform? It is not. God does not strike a contract. Now, I'm not saying we can do whatever we want because we're saved by grace. I'm not saying to jump to the other side, but I'm, not, I'm, I'm clearly saying this. Stop worrying about your salvation. Worry about loving your Savior. Focus on him. Focus on the goodness of God. He will deliver you. The Bible says that he is the initiator and completer or finisher of our faith. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is good. And he doesn't strike contracts with people. His contract was not with Abram saying, hey, Abram, if you do this, then I will promise to do this. But the moment you stop, I'm going to stop. No, what did he do? He did a covenant. Everybody say covenant one more time. I want to explain really quickly the difference between a contract and a covenant. Contracts have exit clauses. Covenants do not. Covenants say this. Contract is, if you give me X, I'll give you Y. If you fail X, I will take away Y. A covenant is this. I love you. We are in relationship. If you fail to uphold your commitment, my promises do not change. This is revolutionary. I pray someone's struggling right now with this notion because you need to break the contractual mindset that you have, the contractual relationship you have with God. A covenant is something entirely different. In fact, a covenant wasn't something that God initiated or authored. That was something that was already happening in the culture. What would happen is if, if there was a nation 
and another tribal nation were at war, when one would lose, the victorious king would go to the losing nation, the, the, the nation that just lost, and say, let's strike a covenant. They would say, I am now your overseer. I am now your master. We're not going to the table as equals. I am now the Lord. You are now a vassal king, and you are now a vassal kingdom submitted to us, and these are the terms and conditions. We promise to protect you if you commit to serving us. And then what would happen, and this was every single covenant, they would bring out a lamb or a goat or a ram. They would slaughter it. They would cut it in half. I mean, pretty, pretty archaic, but you're going to understand why. They would cut it in half, and then the king that just lost would now be tasked to walk in the middle of that while the greater king stood at a distance, arm folded, and the lesser king would say this, so may it be to me if I fail to uphold my side of the bargain. May I be as one of these wretched animals. And that's how they would, that's how they would submit and seal the covenant. But when the Lord came to Abram, something completely revolutionary happened. Similar thing, Moses or Abram understands what a covenant is. He tells Abram in Genesis 15, hey, go ahead and slaughter a lamb. This is my covenant to you. I will make you a, a father of many nations. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I mean, great things. The only condition is, is walk faithfully and blameless, faithfully and blameless. And he's like, all right, sounds good, sounds good, sounds good. So then eventually... They bring out the lamb, and the Lord says, slaughter them, cut them in half. And Abram's like, yeah, I know where this is going. And as soon as he cuts them, he's like, all right, now it's my time to do this. I, I know what this is. And he takes a step, and he's about to step in between the animals, and the Lord comes down in front of Abram. Abram stops, and then the Lord, in the form of a bowl of fire, it's a beautiful imagery of, of Moses in the wilderness, just, just, just begins to walk across this, and he says this, you're gonna fail to uphold your side of the commitment, but I promise to uphold forever my side. You may be faithless, but I will re remain faithful. You may mess up, you may struggle, but I will continue being who I am. The Lord is good. Second Timothy tells us this, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. Why? Is it because he's a God who's insecure and desperately wants to hang on to relationship? No, because he can't deny himself. He is so good, it, it's, it's his character, it oozes from him. In Romans chapter three, we see this in verse three and four. Paul is talking about the Jews here. He says this, true, some of them were unfaithful. Some of the Jews were unfaithful. They, they clearly crucified Jesus. But just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God will be unfaithful? Or does that mean that he is gonna give Israel the boot? What does it say? No, of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. And when he makes a covenant, when he makes a promise, when he comes to us, initiates the relationship, and strikes a deal and says, hey, I'm gonna tip the scales forever in your favor, we can trust him that he, is good. I believe that there is somebody in this place who is burnt out on religion and your entire relationship with God has actually been religion so you have been walking with this weight of sin and struggle over your shoulders and you're saying no God I got this but the Lord is saying let me get this. Let me show you freedom. Let me give you deliverance. Let me change your name from sinner to saved. Let me do this and, and we see God from the very beginning is doing this because he himself is the one that walked through the 
the sacrificial uh, lambs. You know this, that that was already a, a foreshadowing of the gospel, that Jesus would come and do what we could not, that he would be the sacrificial lamb, that he would take upon the sins of the world so that we can find salvation. God is faithful to uphold his side of the covenant. The Bible says that when Abram was 99 years old, why does it say that? Is that so that we can be like, man, Abram, you're an old guy. No, why does, the Bible says, and maybe that's one of the reasons, but, but Genesis 17, verse 1, it says Abram was 99 years old. The reason why it says that is so that the reader would understand where they are in the story. The Lord first appeared to Abram when he was 75, and the Lord gave a promise to Abram at age 75 that said, if you leave the land of the Chaldeans, the land of Ur, and, and follow after me, I will make you a great nation. Literally, the conditions were this. Just walk, Abram. Just walk. Like, like I, I'm, I'm leading somewhere. Follow the directions I'm going. And he says this, I will make you, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. I mean, he's bringing up all these different things. I mean, he's stacking it entirely in his favor. All you have to do is walk. And there were moments where Abram was a little nervous. He starts walking. He gets to Egypt. He's like, hey, uh, Sarai, go, go ahead and, and tell them you're my sister so they don't kill me and take you because you, man, girl, you are looking good today. And, and what happens? The Lord actually strikes Egypt. And it happens twice in the story where the Lord is, is protecting and, and, and he's bringing blessing. And, he's, and, he, and just time and time again, we see this. In Genesis, in Genesis 13, he was given the promise at 75. The text tells us that he's now 85 years old. His relationship with his nephew Lot is going awry. They're fighting, they're, they're squabbling. And finally, the Lord, or finally, Abram gets Lot together, and he's like, Lot, I, you're my nephew. You're, you're the son I've never had. God has blessed me. He's held up everything that he's promised me, except I don't have a son. You are like the son I, uh, the Lord has not given me yet, but I love you. Let's not fight anymore. Let's stand on this mountaintop. You take one side, I'll take the other side because I just don't want our shepherds and our people and our businesses to, to squabble and fight against each other anymore. Lot picked his side, Sodom and Gomorrah included, and, and Abraham was stuck with the lesser side, the wasteland. And Abram is dejected. He's telling himself, Lord, I, th I thought you were gonna provide. I thought you were gonna bless me. I thought you were gonna care for me. I thought you were gonna give me a son, and I just lost the only thing I had, a, a nephew, my nephew Lot. I, I even lost that. And the Lord picks up Abram at the age of 85, 10 years after the promise, and says, Abram, look up at the stars. And Abram looks up. He's like, count them if you can. And he's counting them. And then he stops because Sarai started being that jerk. He said 4,632 when he was clearly on 6,000. And he's like, oh, now I gotta start all over. And he starts over a couple times. And, and finally, he, he, he keeps going. And he's, God's like, hey, stop. If you could count these, you'd know there's an infinite amount. It doesn't end. So will you have that many sons. Trust me. Trust me. And you think that would be the moment where he would be steadfast. He's like, all right, 10 years into this, still no son, but I'm, I'm gonna stay faithful. But what happens? The very next chapter, he does what so many of us do. What happens? The promise of God has not been fulfilled. God, you said you'd give me a husband. You said you'd give me a wife. You said you'd give me that job, that promotion. And, and what happens? Abram and Sarai, they, they concoct a plan 
And they, and they start explaining things away. Well, maybe God gave us Hagar. Hagar was, was the maidservant of, of Sarai. She was actually hired to be the one that would help take care of the children that the Lord was going to give them. They invested in Hagar, and Hagar came along, and, and they're like, well, maybe Hagar is going to be the one that gives us children. So Sarai said, take, take my maidservant, have a child. Maybe this is how the Lord's providing. God blesses those who bless themselves. We'll, we'll force the plan of God through, and, and what happens? He's not walking blameless or faithfully. He's pushing forward the plans of God. He's compromising his morality to push forward the plan of God. That's never what the Lord's going to call you to do. If he gave you a promise, you don't have to do backhanded exchanges to try to get your business going. The Lord is faithful. Stay righteous. Stay moral. Don't compromise. He, if he gave you a promise, he will see it through. You don't have to sneak around. You don't have to be a Jacob. You don't have to be a deceiver. He will provide. Trust him. But he fails And most of us would say, that's when the story ends. The Lord moves on from Abram. He goes to someone else. No, in Genesis 17, in our text, that happened after the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Happened afterwards. God is faithful. Faithful. Everybody say faithful. He made a promise with him. Now, he's 99 years old, 100 years old, the Lord finally gives him his son, Isaac. 25 years later, I asked myself, and this is in my notes, but I was just studying and praying about this, and I was like, Lord, why, why did it take you so long to fulfill your promise to Abe? 25 years. I mean, couldn't you just told him in like, when he was 99, like you could have just said, hey, I'm gonna bless you, and I'm gonna curse those that curse you and I'm gonna take care of you and you know what, just, just love your wife and you know, you, you're not called to have kids but just, you know, just, just trust me. And then at, at the age of 99, a year before you're gonna give him kids, then tell him that, hey, I'm gonna give you a son in a year's time. Why wait 25 years? That, that's, that's not nice, God. And the Lord just spoke to me, said, it took him 25 years to understand my goodness. It took him 25 years to understand that I am faithful that he can trust me. And you may be in the season of waiting on something, like waiting on the rebranded name of our church. But God is faithful. God is faithful. You know, I, I felt like the Lord said to me, he's like, in order for him to be the father I was calling him to be, he needed to be, he needed to understand how good of a father I am. It took him 25 years to come and recognize that. God is good. He's faithful. And, and, and through the story of Abram, can, can I just submit this to us this morning? He's been good to this church. He has been so good to this church. In 1922, we were founded by a woman evangelist by the name of Annabelle Hartman, who I have on good record that she was uh, a, an evangelist that came out of the Azusa Street Revivals in Los Angeles. And, and she actually came and began preaching. I mean, just beautiful story of when Pentecost started. Uh, she she or actually was rebirthed in the Americas, but, but she came and she started preaching faithfully here in Wichita, Kansas. And for seven years, this is a picture not of, this is actually a picture of Amy Semple McPherson, who is another female evangelist. And I said, hey, maybe she looked like that. Uh, so that's not, a, that's not Annabelle Hartman. We have no idea what she looks like. I, guys, I have scoured the internet, ancestry.com. I'm trying to find information on this individual. Uh, if you know anything, man, come, come at me. Let me know. Let's, let's do some history together. Archaeology club, all right? 
That's Amy Semple McPherson, the founder of the Foursquare Church, but she was also a female evangelist, powerful, powerful. But, but, but our Annabelle Hartman, she, she came and she preached in Wichita, Kansas, underneath an elm tree. For seven years, they began gathering weekly underneath a tree. I mean, sometimes you all complain when the coffee's not hot enough, and yet they're outside underneath a tree worshiping Jesus. They do this faithfully for seven years, and what happens? Seven years later, they tell themselves, we need some land. We got families coming, we've got kids, we've, we need some space for Sunday school and some teaching. Like, we have outgrown the shade of this elm tree. It's time for us to, to purchase a building. So they, they purchase, in 1950, or a couple years later, they purchased this very building I wanna show you. This was a picture that I found of ni- in 1934, a picture of the building of Assembly of God. In 1951, they changed their name from Pentecostal Tabernacle, founded by uh, Annabelle Hartman. They changed it in 1951 to First Assembly of God. We were the First Assembly of God Church in Wichita, Kansas. For some of you, that means nothing. That's fine. But for some of you, you're like, wow, that's crazy. In fact, from us, every single, I talked to Pastor Terry, my, my uh, superintendent, my, my, uh, kind of my boss. Uh, I talked to him, and uh, he said, from our church, nearly every single church, Assemblies of God Church in Wichita was birthed. We helped finance, we helped lead, we gave individuals and families that were on the west side. We moved to the corner of Maine and Lincoln, seven blocks east of the Arkansas River. And in 1951, we changed our name from Pentecostal Tabernacle to First Assembly of God. A couple of years later, 30 years later, we actually purchased 27 acres of land. Now, this was a very difficult task to do because the church was booming, the church was growing, God was doing a beautiful work in that church. If anybody is, is from that church, can you just lift up a hand if you've been in that building? Praise the Lord, praise God, oh my gosh, praise the Lord. That's amazing. In 1951, we moved, we changed our name to Pentecostal Tabernacle. In 1984, a phenomenal pastor, by the name of Dean McCormick, convinced the congregation that it was time to move. Pastor McCormick is in the house. We got a picture of you, Pastor. I just want to show this picture really quick. That's a picture of him on this property with the sign that says, Future Home of First Assembly of God. This is where they were going to build, right here. He had to convince a congregation in a very established church, in a very established community, that it would make more sense for us to move and purchase 25 acres on the far side of town. There was nothing on the corner of Webb and Kellogg. Nothing. We actually got a picture of what that looks like. This was our church. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. The only good thing about that location at the time was that there was no construction on Kellogg. But the Lord prophetically spoke to the leadership and said, it's time for us to move. God has been good to us. In 1995, we began or we completed construction on this building. They purchased that land in 84. They finished the payment in 88. They began building and completed building in December of 1995. And we took on the name Maranatha Worship Center. For 25 years of our 100-year legacy, the Lord has been faithful to us and has allowed us to see salvations. We've built, we baptized so many people, baptism in the Holy Spirit. I mean, God has done phenomenal things through that name. In fact, we have even built a wing for our youth when it was growing in the early 2000s. In 2018, we built the, the section in the back and we completely enhanced that entire space so that we could best minister to the needs of kids and young families. And, and we built a coffee shop to feed the addiction of all of you in this place. <laughs> but man, 
God has been faithful, family. A hundred years in 2022, we'll hit it. And he's gonna be faithful and faithful and faithful. If he doesn't return, we will be around for another hundred years. Whether we take on the name Pentecostal Tabernacle, First Assembly of God, Maranatha Worship Center, MWC, or the name that the Lord is gonna give us here in a second. Let me tell you this story. I'm going to keep this going. I'm milking this. I'm milking this. I don't, get, I don't give any chances to do this. But let me just tell you where this name came from. In 2018, January 2018, I began praying, God, what are you doing? I went to James River Church in December. My family and I, we celebrate Christmas in, in the Ozarks, and we went to James River Church, and they were about to jump into their Daniel fast. Um, it was December, and the Lord had spoke to me in that service, I want your church to pray and fast in a month from now. I want you to start off the year in prayer and fasting. And I said, Lord, that's not how things work. We've got a calendar. It's not on the calendar. And he's like, I'm the Lord. Listen to me. And I was like, all right. I went back to the leadership and staff, and I'm like, guys, uh, how much do you like your sweets? Because they're about to be gone. We're fasting and praying. And the church was faithful. We prayed and fast. In that fast, the Lord had begun dropping in my heart the name Mosaic. Mosaic. And I started praying about this. Well, what's a mosaic? And I started looking things up. And I want to just give you the definition of mosaic. Mosaic, noun, an art form made up of thousands of pieces of glass, tiles, or clay of various shapes, colors, and sizes that individually can be regarded as purposeless until they're masterfully brought together by a brilliant artist. And the Lord just dropped that on my heart that, and his church will be a mosaic, an expression of people of various, various uh, backgrounds and colors and, 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 and nations and languages and, and, and feelings. And, and, and he will be the one that cements them through the adhesive of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus himself would be the glue and, and he will make this beautiful tapestry of, of us and, and that we will be a display to the city and the city will be so attracted that they are gonna say, how can I be a part of this beautiful art form? And, and the Lord was just giving this to me and giving it to me and, and I couldn't shake it and mosaic was, was just something that God was bringing to me. And then it came time to, to bring to the leadership what the Lord had been speaking to me. We were about to jump into construction. And by our wisdom and our leadership, we're like, hey, it's not, the good, it's not a good time to change the name. It's not time for a rebrand. We're about to do a building campaign. Let's focus on that. So we, we just continue to pray about this. And, and as we're doing construction, we're preparing and cleaning things up, I find this jar. You're like, wow, cool jar, Pastor. This jar... In the early 2000s was a illustration that one of the pastors, not myself, but one of our pastors began preaching and using to the body of Christ. It's full of red, yellow, black, and white gumballs. It looks like a gumball machine. And essentially, it's a play on the imagery provided by that child nursery rhyme. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They're all, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. And, and, and what it inscribed on here is the word mosaic. What God had been speaking to me, the Lord already spoke to a pastor 18 years prior. This isn't, and then that's when it hit me. I was like, this isn't my name. This isn't my dream. This is, this is you, God but I know you're a strategic God. And here's what I know about the name Mosaic. It's already taken. There's a church on the west side that already has the name Mosaic. 
There's a church uh, even further west in Los Angeles that is a huge church. Uh, God, I don't, I don't want to get sued if we take that name. What if they want to plant in Wichita someday and something like that happens and I have friends who've experienced things like that. So I was like, God, let's, uh, we, we can't do that. Not only that, but we're living in a technological age, a, a social media age where, where, where you need something unique and distinctive. You want your, your social media handles and your URLs and you just want good strategy involved here. God, like that, that's very difficult. So we, we put the idea to rest and we began praying and praying and praying. We tried different names and we prayed about things. I mean, we had long meetings in our elder meetings and long meetings in our staff meetings trying to come up with a name and we continued to come back to the idea of mosaic. So we looked up the Greek. We looked up the Hebrew. We, we tried to be super spiritual and find things that, that, that were there. But then I went back to the definition and I saw this, mosaic, M-O space Z-A-I-K. And that's when it hit me, Zaic. Zaic, it's, it's unique, it's, it's distinctive, it's, it's something that no one else will have, so we can hold on to the name, we will have URLs and, and Instagram and social media and present ourselves to the community, it communicates what we're trying to accomplish, we, we want to be a mosaic masterpiece of uh, God being the artist, us being the art form, like, like God can do this, so, so Zaic just kept coming to my heart, I'm like, yeah, Zaic, I love the Zaic church, Zaic church, it's, it's not as long as Maranatha Worship Center, but, but Zaic, it, it might stick, you never know, and it just, like, all these, like, different things were just flooding to me, we're just like falling in love with Zaic. And uh, man, I, I'm, I'm proud to tell you that we are rebranding our name to Zaic Church. Zaic Church. Let me show you. We got a little. I get what you're saying. Zaic Church, Pastor, that, that's not a word. Like that, that's, that's, that's tough to, like how do I explain that? And you know what? You know what honestly came to me? I felt the Lord say this. What was Groupon? What was Netflix? What was Hulu? What was Nike? What was Adidas? What, what were all these, these companies and brands that absolutely mean nothing? They're not even words. They became words when people in the community started liking them and started knowing what they were. My dream is this, that there will come a day where we won't have to explain what Zaic is. People will just know. They're just going to know that God is going to use us to reach thousands thousands. I believe that. We don't, no one explains what Nike is anymore. They just know what it is. They know what it is. And I'm not, I know we're not a brand. We're not a company, but man, I know that names mean nothing until they take on meaning. And the meaning of Zaic Church is this. We exist to help all people belong to Jesus. We exist to help all people belong to Jesus, transforming them to become a part of God's mosaic masterpiece. We are Zaic Church. Can we all stand real quick as we conclude? Man, God has been faithful. Can we just lift up our hands and just surrender our hearts to him? Lord, we thank you so much for your faithfulness to us, God. Lord, we know that no matter if we call ourselves Pentecostal Tabernacle, no matter if we call ourselves First Assembly of God or, or Maranatha Worship Center or MWC, we know that, that our allegiance is to you. It's not to a name. Our name is followers of Christ. We are your church. But we thank you so much that you have brought Zaic Church to us. 
And God, at this inauguration, at this moment, Lord, as we, as we just have these, these feelings of excitement, these, these feelings of, of unity, cohesion, and just anticipation, Lord, I pray that you would continue to do a powerful, powerful work in us and through us. Lord, we just pray right now over the legacy of Zaic Church. I pray that we would exist for a hundred more years, that the whole community would know who we are by the love that we have for you, our commitment to you, but our love for the world. God, may you just bring more and more people to become a part of this mosaic masterpiece that you are adhesively bringing together, that you are the one that causes us to stick. Help us, Jesus, to be the church you've called us to be. Help us be Zaic Church. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your faithfulness and goodness to us, Jesus. In your name we pray, and everybody said, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Love you guys. God bless you. Let's worship. You are dismissed. And that wraps up today's message, but we've got more on the way, so be sure to subscribe so you won't miss a future podcast. You belong here, so we encourage you to get connected. You can find us on social media or online at mwcwichita.com. That's mwcwichita.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next week.